With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. How do you value a cryptocurrency? It seems like the value is just pulled out of thin air by the market. And then you have people saying it's a fad or there's no value to these things. But there is a way to value these things. How do you do it? And furthermore, what's the best way? Is it possible to time the crypto market? I talked to Tasha from Tasha Labs. She's one of the smartest people I know in the crypto space. You definitely have to check out her website, Tasha Labs, and sign up for her newsletter. We talk in great detail, not only how do you value a crypto, not only how you can time the crypto market, but what really are some of the future use cases of crypto that will lead to ultimately a billion users and why this is not just a fad. Again, back in 1999, 2000, 2001, everyone was still saying the internet was a fad. Well, it wasn't. Crypto is going to follow the same path, but let's hear more details. This is Tasha. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. What occupies most of your day? You know, I, I, I consult with projects on tokenomics and on other, you know, projects that work with. I do investing. I also partner with, say, Angel Syndicate, and uh, we do, like, uh, regular deals. So, um, intro projects and vetting projects. And uh, I have uh, other things that are not Web3 related. I do like consulting in economics and I also run a software company. So it's just... You keep pretty busy. Everything adds up. So, but you know, it's like we are similar in that sense because I know you're multi-talented and multi-interested in like multiple, like cross-disciplinary and you are like doing like all sorts of projects as well. So I'm sure you understand. <laughs> I think it's a good way to kind of diversify life so that no one thing can take you down. To me, it's like, uh, you know, my goal is to live to 120 years old. And I want to think about, okay, I have all these years ahead. What am I going to do? So I've got to, you know, like uh, have new projects and uh, new investments and new skills that I'm building on. So, you know, to keep life interesting going forward. Yeah. So it's not like a typical, uh, you know, traditionally you have a job and you have a career and you stick to that for the 23 years and then you retire. That's just not going to cut it anymore. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny because I think like if you look at all the science and research on you know, anti-aging and viewing aging as a disease rather than just an inevitability so that uh -huh. they could actually focus on solving this disease. There is real progress being made all over this industry. And I think it's, and it's exponential sort of progress. So it's the kind of thing where it's really small and you like barely hear about it now, but in a few years, it uh -huh. could be this huge thing. That's just a natural part of our lives that we, we get into an anti-aging regimen, whether it's lifestyle or medicine or whatever. I mean, is that why you think you'll live to 120? Because you see the the science on this? Yeah, you know, 120 is, uh, the research shows it's the natural human lifespan, if nothing like accidental, like, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, you know, cancer that happened to you or if none of those things happen to you and you take care of your life, then the natural lifespan should be 120. That's and that's for now. We're not even talking about the uh, scientific advancement that will will even you know increase that. So so I'm I'm an optimist. So you take care of your life and the, whatever the new scientific discoveries, I'm sure will keep happening. You know, if you look at the the next uh, 10 20 years, I, I'm like in in terms of investment, I'm obviously very very interested and uh, working a lot in Web three. But in another area, I'm 
investing a lot in in terms of my time and energy and doing research and also monetary is uh, biotech. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, particularly like genomics, right? Like genomics is where you know the gene editing stuff is where there's room for so many discoveries that could solve so many medical yeah. issues. You look at like uh, Moderna, for example, you know, their claim to fame was the mRNA COVID vaccine, right? But you're like, these days, like, they're coming up with news, like, every other day. It's like, oh, we have this uh, vaccine for, I don't know, lung disease. We have this vaccine for, you know, XYZ. So these things are going to ca- keep happening for, you know, next uh, uh, couple of decades. I, that's what I think. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, I do think the stuff like the the CRISPR style gene editing is going to be get bigger and bigger. I mean, it's an exponential increase every year since for the past 40 years. And then you have stuff like these, I don't know if you're familiar with these uh, Yamanaka factors that they've been experimenting on mice with and extending, mm-hmm. you know, literally it like resets the clock in mice. It makes the old mice younger. And problem is the mice get cancer after that. So they still, awesome. they're still working out the kinks. But there, there's lots of interesting things happening. Yeah. But crypto, <sighs> you recently wrote a couple of great articles on, you know, A, how to value uh, any particular token or cryptocurrency, and B, how to time the crypto market. And I thought there were very interesting models you were building. Uh-huh. Um, maybe we could start with how to time the crypto market, because I think that's very interesting and it's very timely right now. Like we're in a period where post FT, <laughs> right after FTX, Every talking head on the news was saying crypto's going to zero. Obviously, like Ethereum is 50% higher or 60% higher than the, than the FTX lows. Bitcoin's almost 50% higher. Like, what's your model and what's it showing? And so, I have questions because I obviously know what your model is. Okay, all right. So so, so let me just like, uh, talk a little bit about uh, what my model is about, which is really, I didn't invent this. It's been Existing in TradFi for a gazillion years, it's basically market breadth indicators. It tells you um, how broad-based a particular market move is, whether it's to the upside and to the downside. So what is market breadth? It's, it means like how, how many items, or you can think of tickers like stocks or tokens, that are participating in a market move. So if the total crypto uh, market cap goes up 5% today, is that because only like a two or three large caps like uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin goes up? Or is it because it's more broad-based, maybe like a 400, 500 uh, tokens all go up? So the empirical fact is it, it tends to be the case that the wider the market breadth is, meaning the more participation there is in a particular market move, the more likely that it will have some like, it will have a continuation, it will have uh, you know, last longer, basically. So just to see if I understand. So basically, you, you take the number of tokens going up, you, you look at the number of tokens going down. If the ratio of tokens going up versus tokens going down is above a certain level, you say that the market has kind of some momentum going for it and it will continue to go further. You know, you can look at this in different indicators. You can calculate uh, what percentage token go up versus what percentage token go down, which People call it advanced decline ratio, for example. Or you can look at, uh, you set a threshold, okay, I only want to look at uh, a bigger move. So I want to look at tokens that go up, uh, for example, 5% in a day. So you look at number of tokens go up 5% versus number of tokens down 5%. You look at ratio and look at numbers. Or you can look at, okay, I want to go maybe like a daily uh, data or hourly data, God forbid, is too volatile. So I want to look at longer time periods. So maybe a week or a month, I look at, okay, this past uh, seven days, um, I want to look at number of tokens, how many of them have gone up uh, 20%, for example, versus down 20%. You can look at at any interval you want, and that will give you a sense of uh, market breadth. And you can look at different indicators at different timeframes and uh, do your own comparison and to come up with some general conclusion of your own that depends to an extent on your own, um, you know, judgment. And that's one type. The other type is you can look at, okay, um, the other type of market breadth indicator, for example, you can use like a a secondary, like derivative indicators, like moving average, right? So you look at uh, how many tokens, what percentage of tokens are above uh, 50-day moving average right now, for example, compared to uh, those that are 
below their uh, 40-day, 50-day uh, moving average. Or you can look at, okay, how uh, what percentage of tokens are above the high of the past one year or above the high of past quarter versus the percentage of tokens that, that are below the past low of the previous quarter or previous year. So those give you like uh, indicators of, uh, of, of market breadth, right? So if you want to go like statistical about this, then you can look at these ratios and you can, you know, get a longer time series about these ratios and you can calculate like a percentiles of these ratios, right? So um, like, for example, if you look at percentage of tokens above a 50-day moving average, let's say like on a, um, on a very mediocre average day in the market, that percent is, uh, uh, I don't know, 50% of tokens above 50-day uh, moving average. Let's just say, I don't know what, I don't remember what the actual number is. But you notice that once this ratio goes above like uh, 80 percentile or 90 percentile, it's very likely the market will revert. It's just like a mean reversion is market tendency of, of any market, right? So, so there are some basic tendency of the market, mean reversion and trends. Those are like a very two basic trends. They're kind of against each other. So when mean reversion is when something goes too high, it reverts back to the mean and will eventually go lower. Um, yes. Trends are when something is going high, it tends to go higher. It tends to perpetuate for a period of time until it doesn't. Right. So, so I know it sounds contradictory, right? But you, you have to judge this. It, it, like uh, when a move just first started, the trend factor tend to dominate, right? So something goes up, it tend to have the tendency to go up more. But after a while, the mean reversion factor starts to set in, right? So this is not something that you can just fully automate and uh, use a computer to, um, <laughs> to guide your. But you can a little bit. You can, you can. That's what these uh, indicators, uh, you know, help you do. And also, there are people who do that, you know, completely automate their investment or trading decisions. So um, I would say it's it's really hard to do. It's like uh, there is a factor of human consciousness your discretionary judgment that involved that it's just somehow very hard to replace, at least at this stage. If in the future, like AI becomes so much smarter than humans, I don't know. But right now, it's just like you need human discretions for the most part, I, I think, you know. So basically, these indicators, like it tells you, okay, is there a trend? How, how strong is the trend? And like a market breadth, it tells you the, str the strength of the trend, right? So, but, but also you look at these cutoff points, like a, the higher band and lower band, for example, we talk about these ratios, like uh, moving average uh, ratios, right? So if 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 uh, if if at some some point in the market, you know, like uh, seventy five percent or ninety percent of the tokens are above their fifty day moving average, maybe they're like I would say more than fifty percent likelihood that in the near term there will be some kind of uh, mean reversion happening. So. Um, you can look at, you know, I posted this uh, um, uh, data on, on my website uh, in terms of uh, these cutoff ratios of where the market is in this cut, uh, like uh, when these cutoff happens, right? So like, for example, uh, a couple of days ago, I posted on Twitter that, uh, you know, my my, my uh, mean reversion indicator just uh, showed up for the first time. It, basically, the number of tokens that crossing like 40 day or 50 day, I forgot which one is uh, is it, crossing the 75% percentile on the upside. So for the first time in, in like a couple months, the last time it happened was in November, right? We had a small uptick in the market and then FTX happened immediately to the downside, right? So that immediately, that was like an exogenous event broke that trend. So, so but then, you know, a, a couple of days ago, this uh, started showing up again. So which makes sense, right? Because uh, since since the beginning of this month, we are at the uh, you know third week of January right now. So since the first week of January, the past the two three weeks, uh, uh, crypto has been running up like nonstop. So yeah, so I think this uh, makes sense, right? So in what the indicator starts to pick up. So your indicator, when you say mean reversion, your indicator is saying maybe too many things are going up and it's time for a little break. Uh, yes, that's what it's basically saying. Now you can talk about okay. Because the percentile, because that indicator is just a, like statistical outliers, it's picking up. I look at like a past of five, six years. What's the range of this indicator? So, and then when this, uh, when that indicator goes above the twenty-five to seventy-five percentile, which is the ballpark, like normal part, 
when it becomes an outlier, then that signals some kind of turning point could be happening, right? Or could be happening soon. But the question is, we're talking about like, it still depends on like what the underlying market, fundamental market environment is, right? So for example, at the beginning of, because these are statistical patterns, summary statistics, they're picking up like a both across different market conditions, across both bull and bear markets. So, but those markets can be very different, right? So, but when you were talking about, for example, at the beginning of the bull market, you have very, very strong buying power coming in into the market and really like uh, uh, hit the price out, out of the park, so, so to speak. And it can sustain itself for an extended period of time beyond what the cross-market condition average will suggest to you. So in that case, you know, that statistical outlier, that may, that it may stay there for, for an extended period of time. So I'm not saying once it indicator hits sure. you know, upper bound or lower bound, the market will reverse immediately. I'm not saying that. If, if that is the case, then, then it becomes like a guaranteed way to make money, which is no, there's no such thing in the world. Okay. So um, it's just, a, you know, investing, I see it as a game of probability, right? So it just uh, helps you to gain some insight on probability. That's it. It's interesting because I used to do a lot of uh, quant-related, both day trading and intermediate-term trading, where I would look at these types of, of indicators. So for instance, let's take 2002, there were almost zero IPOs. So zero mm -hmm. new issuance of shares and like very yeah. few secondary, zero IPOs. And so the literal, literally the supply of shares on the market had been remaining the same, but demand for whatever reason was going up. And that's usually a good indicator that, okay, maybe the stock market's uh, ready for an extended bull run. And then mm -hmm. you could see how this applies on a monthly basis, weekly basis, daily basis, even indicators on a minute by minute basis. Like how much are these indicators like almost like fractals where no matter what the size, they still sure. work. But mm -hmm. there's always going to be cases, you know, where it works until it doesn't work anymore. And because mm -hmm. what you're really modeling is almost institutional behavior because that's what really drives massive moves, at least in the stock market. Yeah, well, it, it, I would say it apply more to that institutional behavior, apply more to the stock market than the crypto market because, I mean, the crypto market is like $1 trillion right Yeah, now? it's small. Okay. And speculators are so, still really involved <laughs> in, in every move of the crypto market. It's it's just a very small, and uh, there is a limited institutional liquidity in in the market compared to the traditional financial market. But still, I think the general principle is the same. You you know, these indicators tells you uh, some give you some information about the uh, some some kind of turning, some kind of change that's happening in the market. What about like the bigger picture in terms of you know? Yes, Ethereum's moved very quickly from let's say eleven hundred to almost sixteen hundred the other day. Uh, uh -huh. and so maybe that's time for mean reversion and plus a lot of other smaller tokens have gone up. So yes, maybe there's time for a little bit of a pullback or a big pullback, who knows? But what about overall? Like if you broaden out the picture, you see almost every token, including Ethereum Bitcoin is more than, you know, 50% off its highs. In some cases, very legitimate tokens are 90% or more over the, off their highs. Does the indicator play a role there where at least compared to a year ago, something like a hundred percent of tokens are down? Are, are below their, like, let's say, 200-day moving average? You know, uh, I, I would be very careful to apply some kind of value investing, like a perspective, to this type of market. <laughs> because that's right, almost because... sounds like, uh, like what you're saying, you know, like you look at valuation, like a solid project, uh, they're down so much. Uh, because it, the entire, I mean, I, I feel like the value investing and crypto, those two are like... Uh, don't really, the, the, you put those two together, those that the, the two don't go together in my world. Okay. Because uh, we are talking about a highly speculative market that has actually very little real world traction yet. And all we are seeing is uh, promise of the future, which is right. uh, you see the same thing. It's, it's like a, it's the same thing when you look at stock market, right? So there is growth stocks. You know, we just talked about the beginning, the Moderna of the world uh, and the Tesla of the world. And then there's the value stocks, uh, the, you know, I don't know, Johnson & Johnson, the uh, Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> so you look at these uh, things differently, right? For the growth stocks, you it, they go up, they, 
they don't tend to go out because there is a solid fundamental behind it, but it, they go out because there is a very bright, perceived a very bright future. <laughs> you, you don't think that that discounted cash flow analysis of both growth and value stocks would result in essentially the same figures? Because like take Tesla, and I'm not a fan either way of Tesla. I don't own it. I've never written about it. Yeah, let's not talk about Tesla because it, it just uh, pushes All too right. many buttons and people are going to hate us. So let's talk about like Amazon in 1999. All right. It was overvalued in 1999, or was it? Because what happens with the growth stock is if you try to do uh, any kind of, okay, what is this company going to be making 20 years from now? Let's discount it back to today's value. With, with Exxon or Johnson and Johnson, it's very predictable. With Amazon, it's all just based on probabilities. Like what's the probability the internet is going to grow to a billion users? It, it was at 50 million in 1999. What's the probability that Amazon's going to be the winner in e-commerce? So you factor all these things in and you try to do a more difficult kind of unpredictable discounted cash flow analysis. And, you know, Amazon, if you picked all your probabilities right, you would have made a lot of money. And if you were to say, okay, I don't know, it's hard to predict then you would have stayed out of that and focused on I, value stocks. I don't know how you how you could have done a cash flow analysis in 1999 for Amazon because could you have foreseen the emergence of AWS for example, which is the lion's share of their revenue now? Right. So, I mean, how did right, how you could couldn't, you even You couldn't have foreseen that. Yeah, so so how could you even do that? So so that's why I'm I'm saying it's like value investing cash flow that kind of framework doesn't really apply to the growth stock or the ballpark of all the parts of the Web3 world, actually, because it's just a different framework, right? It, it's, it's a, this is a very narrative-driven, a narr where does the narrative come from? It's the narrative about how much the thing is going to grow or going to explode in the future with very little like uh, empirical evidence in, in, in terms of cash flow <laughs> behind it. That's why these things can right. be highly, highly volatile because essentially they were driven by people's opinions, right? So, you, you know, so um, you can, you can say, okay, so if you, if you had bought uh, Amazon in 1999, but you could have uh, bought a bunch of other things in 1999, right? So <laughs> uh, you look at, uh, for example, Cisco, right? If you bought like a Cisco in 1999, you're still barely breaking even today. <laughs> so oh, yeah, is that true? I don't even know. So, <laughs> So, so it's a, you know, it's like a, a same thing, you know, I was uh, just, just chatting with my partner at uh, Wagme Ventures, which is uh, with some friends uh, there because, uh, you know, we, we were doing like a angel syndicate for Web3. It's, if you look at, you know, all the like startup investing, uh, there are some similarities um, with early stage investing with like gross investing in like um it's just the market is liquid and market is illiquid, but there is some underlying similarity there, which is um, if if you look at the long term, it's very hard to pick winners, right? So it's uh, 95% of the startups fail. And a lot of these uh, nowadays, it's easier to get an IPO. <laughs> so you get a, a very early, a lot of early stage companies in the public market as well. So, but the failure rate of those uh, can be very high, right? And if you look at, look back in hindsight, you can pick the winners. Okay, that one, two, three things went up a thousand percent, but you know, the rest of the 95% just uh, sunk like a stone, right? <laughs> I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm gonna watch some rocket launches. I'm gonna, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. 
and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let me ask, like in terms of valuation of tokens, you can look potentially, okay, what is the problem this token is trying to solve? What is the size of that market? You, you can start to look at like revenues. You know, some of these tokens are already making revenues. You know, some of the picks, if, if you think the crypto ecosystem is going to grow and let's say your theory is, okay, it's going to replace to some extent or to every extent the financial ecosystem. So trading will happen only on DeFi exchanges and like stocks will be converted with, you know, uh, synthetic style tokens into crypto so they can be traded on DeFi exchanges. Then you could say, okay, the stock market or the market of, of derivatives is hundreds of trillions. And we can, uh, uh, you know, eventually the, the cryptos that are the picks and shovels that are going to build this ecosystem, they're all going to, you know, exchanges are going to need to buy them. And so their revenues are going to grow up. Their cash flows are going are to go up. Maybe you can do some type of company style analysis of cryptos that way. Okay. So that's the exactly this kind of uh, analysis that I I prefer not do because I don't think they fit quite much to the crypto world right now. What I'm trying to look at is what's the type of project that can ha- that has at least a shot at gaining some kind of network effect. So this is what I talk. So at the beginning we we, we discussed we're going to talk about valuation, right? So uh, maybe this is the right time to talk about that because uh, you you can value to- the tokens uh, with uh, discounted cash flow as you. Uh, mentioned, uh, you know, or some kind of revenue model, but you know, uh, to, to like a, to me, if you if if something is at this early stage, it's like, uh, and you're talking about a longer term investment, you're looking at you, you you need to have similar to a venture capital mentality, right? So you have to look at is there is this thing possibly like a thousand x or a hundred x. Because your risk is extremely high, extremely high. So to to achieve for any one of your investment in order for you to achieve a positive expected return, uh, if we are talking about like a binary scenario, either thing go to the sky or the thing go to zero, which is very likely in early stage, you know, these uh, new technologies uh, projects, then you have to... that. First, the scenario has to give a really high return in order to uh, compensate for the zero scenario, which is 
a high probability scenario. <laughs> so, right. so, 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 so then, then you're looking at, okay, uh, does this thing has any potential to even go to a hundred X or a thousand X, um, without, uh, without, uh, you know, necessarily being helped by, by, uh, by a bubble scenario. Right. So, uh, because uh, it's it, so so basically that that's why the venture capitalists said uh, they want to find the network uh, style businesses and uh, those that have really really big market cap. Uh, sorry, the uh, TAM, the uh, market size, right? So, uh, so so that's why you know to to me, like I'm most interested in these uh, like a platform style of. Uh, of uh, of projects in Web three, which is right. uh, you know layer one, layer two blockchains and some other select uh, infrastructure projects. So let's take Ethereum versus Bitcoin as an example. Ethereum, I would say, is more of a platform than Bitcoin, and it has the network effect. Like the more people building projects on top of Ethereum, the more other people will have to adapt to Ethereum if they want to use those projects or if they want to participate as a consumer in those in those projects. Whereas Bitcoin. There's there's not as much uh, network effect because if someone's willing to pay in Bitcoin, it's not necessarily the case that other people have to pay or or buy in Bitcoin. Yeah, well, so so um, I I think definitely you know um, any 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 network. So 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 the these uh, uh, blockchain infrastructure, the network, how that happens mechanically is that you have people. On the on the network, like using the blockchain, and they are paying for transactions, right? So uh, that transaction fee is paid in the native token, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or some, something else. Um, and then, in order to be active on the platform, you have to hold a certain amount of that token. Um, you could imagine a scenario where you do not hold a token balance in your wallet, but you just like, okay, today I need to make a transaction. So I immediately exchange some fiat currency or something else for this native token and then use that for a transaction. And then after that, I just immediately sell that token. But that kind of scenario, it's not, even that kind of scenario, you have to, there is a time window where you, when you are holding that positive balance of that native token in your wallet, right? So, so mechanically, more people are using the, the platform means more people need to hold at least some amount of that native token in their wallet. So as the volume of the um, as the volume of transaction grows, as the volume of uh, uh, users grow, that becomes uh, that that has uh, you know proportional uh, demand pressure, upward demand pressure on that token. Right. So um, this is the way that I would tend to think about it in terms of uh, how that network. Um, growth translates into the token price growth. Um, this is very different from a valuation model where you, 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 you deduce the token value from how much money the company is making. Right. No. So I, I like this idea of looking at it in terms of like network effect, because then as something grows, the, it, the, the value of it grows exponentially, which is what you want when you're looking for hundred X or thousand X returns. And so, so again, like what are the platform style tokens? And like, I suppose any story could be told about any token, but like, it seems like, and, and I'm not again, supporting one versus the other. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud, like Ethereum versus Bitcoin, which are the most well-known ones. Ethereum seems more platform-like where when one person uses it and it gets successful with that one person, other people will have to use it. Kind of that network effect versus Bitcoin is not as much as a platform. I'm not sure this, like, this is not like a telephone network. Okay. It's not like a, one person uses, so the other person has to use it. There's some 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 component in that, but I think it's just a you know once you have um, once you have this uh, uh, worldwide network of um, where like people can transact and people can build like a programming logic on top, and uh, um, it attracts a certain amount of liquidity and it attracts a certain amount of user base and then that tend to self-perpetuate um uh, you know if you know like uh, okay most of the liquidity on in the blockchain world in the web3 world today is locked in like ethereum compatible um you know applications 
uh, either applications are built on Ethereum or built on some layer two of Ethereum, like Arbitrum or Optimism, something like that. In other words, it's like an EVM like chain, Ethereum virtual machine compatible chains. So in, like most of the liquidity is locked in this network, this ecosystem. All right. So, and then you, you, you think of like a new, so, so they have, so, so, so that is a natural moat, natural competitive advantage, right? So, uh, as a new coming, as a new, like a, a blockchain platform, you have to go against that, right? Because, uh, as an application, if I'm like looking to build on top of a blockchain, I'm thinking about, okay, where, where does my liquidity can come from? Where does my user can come from? Am I going to go to a platform that already has a bunch of eyeballs and a bunch of users? Or am I going to go with a platform that starting from scratch? Maybe I'll go with the latter if I'm, you know, sufficiently bribed to do so. That's why newer blockchains, they have these incentive programs for, uh, for, 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 for uh, applications to build on them. It's similar to countries that uh, have tax, tax credit uh, for yeah. their foreign direct investments. But this is like a telephone network. Like, okay, so like if the telephone network's built on Ethereum, but you want to call, if you want to call your friends on a telephone network that's not built in a certain way, you have okay. to create your own new telephone network and you have to get your friend to use it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I got it. So yeah, you're right. So in that sense, there is a um, similarity there. So, but if you like that, these, the kind of moat, um, really important, right? So, um, so I did uh, this evaluation estimation. So basically uh, modeling the uh, market cap of a blockchain platform as a function of uh, transaction, number of transactions or the number of active users, which is a, you know, uh, which is a proxy for the amount of traction this platform has. And as a function of that, and also as a function of the mode of the platform, and also a function of the current state of the crypto market. Modeling the market cap as a function of platform traction, platform moat, and crypto market conditions. How do you measure moat? So the moat, because this is empirical, like it's a regression, right? So the moat is just simply a fixed effect in that panel regression. So the panel is a time series of uh, different series. So we have like a in this uh, particular estimation, I have like a 12 blockchains in this uh, data sample. And then we have like a time series for each of the blockchain, right? So that is basically the fixed effect for each, each of the chain. Basically, it's one number for each chain. So you see that uh, the older platforms like Ethereum and Bitcoin that have existed for a while, not very long, but at least longer than most <laughs> in Web3, they have the higher moat factor, right? They have the higher coefficient for that moat um, because they're, they've been around for a while and then people think they will continue to exist. I'm just wondering, just in terms of statistically, would moat be correlated with number of users? Too, no. too correlated to be useful in the model? No. Okay. No, it's a, it's a number of users is already taken care of by the, um, by the you know, uh, by the platform, yeah, it's already in the model. It's a separate thing from that number of user. It's it basically it's the factor that cannot. That's the platform specific factor that cannot be explained by the traction by the um, by the traction alone. So, okay, so so because again, I'm 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 trying to understand how you measure like Ethereum's mode versus let's just make it up like Solana's mode. Um, yeah, I, seems I, like I, number I, of users would be a good. Yeah, well, yeah. Way so, to do so that. the number of users already in the model, but this is again, this is a separate fact. It's like a price premium. You can think of it. Uh, a price okay. premium, in addition to what can be accounted for by the uh, by the amount of traction of the platform. So, okay. if if Ethereum has five users and Solana has five users, so they have equal amount of traction. Let's say. But if uh, okay. if an investor perceives that Ethereum is more uh, has a higher moat or it's more um, more likely to continue to be around, in other words, safer, more secure, however you interpreted this, then you know people are willing to pay a higher price for it, to pay a markup for it. So maybe you are willing to pay five dollars for 
uh, Solana, you're willing to pay $7 for Ethereum, even though they have the same amount of users. That's what the moat factor measures. Okay. So using these valuations, what, what are using this model? What surprised you? What, what came out of it? Um, so, so, so I ran this a while ago. Okay. So basically at the time I ran it, which is, um, actually a month ago, but you know, market has changed a lot, uh, just uh, from a month ago, cause, uh, everything has pumped. So I'm not sure like, uh, what's the status for it right now. I haven't, uh, I look at it recently, but the time I ran it, so basically one way you can use this type of uh, estimation is to look at uh, what is the difference between the actual market cap right now of this platform versus what the model says, what the model would estimate it should be at this point in time, given the traction, given the moat, given the crypto market conditions. Right? And then you can calculate the difference and you see, okay, um, for 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 some of the tokens, the difference is pretty high. Like for example, at the time I ran it for Polygon, that um, its actual market cap was like forty percent higher uh, compared to what the model had predicted at that time. Okay. When you say forty percent higher, like are you able to backtest like all the other times it was forty percent higher? It would revert to the mean, or yeah, like, yeah. how so, are you able so, to kind of? Test? So, so, so you you can see historically there is a very significant, actually, very significant negative relationship between the quote unquote overvaluation and the subsequent performance. So, mm. meaning, if so, this is from historical data, right? So, uh. If the if a, if this platform today um, is uh, its its actual market cap is so much higher than the predicted market cap by the model, in the following year in the following year it tends to underperform the crypto market in general. Not not saying that it would not underperform, meaning relative to the crypto market. Okay, so it still depends on crypto market conditions. I mean, like uh, the market go market go up, it probably go up. Market go down, it will probably go down but it's just like relative to the market. Do you feel like long-term though, ultimately, just like with Amazon, it was impossible to predict in 1999 and maybe Apple was as well. Ultimately though, these things in the very, very long-term do, do become, you know, analyzable because of cash flow, revenues, business model, you know, size of the market, you know, product market fit, all of these things. You know, what do you, since you, I know you're a believer in crypto long term, what are kind of the use cases that a lot of these bigger tokens are going to fit into that might justify, you know, higher and higher valuations, regardless of crypto market sentiment right now? We are talking about a very early stage sector, right? So we were talking about actually biotech at the beginning of this conversation. It's really kind of similar. <laughs> It's really kind of yeah. a similar deal in terms of where the space is because you know you you have like every other day you see a new token some new project doing something interesting oh like a yeah, sort of interesting but you know how 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 much this thing will have in five years ten years I don't know but like biotech biotech's the same thing you know how many clinical stage biotech companies there are in the stock market I mean. Uh, I actually counted the other day. Like I, I would say, like you know, of course you uh, did. Yes, uh, like uh, in in the range of uh, I think that in, I forgot a number, but in the range of a thousand. Okay. Um, so you think this a, these are like a clinical stage biotech companies are basically you know they have like a one or two ideas for a breakthrough drug. If they really break through, they're gonna make it big, right? But Higher chance is not going to break through. <laughs> They're going to fail. But the size, but we know the size of the use case is enormous. Like some biotech yeah, will win, sure, sure. some will lose. Yeah. And the technology so, gets better and better. Yeah. So overall, I am like totally bullish about biotech, right? Because I know like a, a, in next 23 years, we're going to see some spectacular breakthroughs. Yeah. But just in terms of every single one of them, 
and also like a, all like people all see this, right? So and also the um this was there's so many biotech companies, uh, new like clinical stage companies out there, but most of them still are gonna fail. That's so, true, but nobody would say the industry is a fad. Whereas with crypto, some people say, let's say half the people in the world say, oh, this this crypto thing is just a fad. And yeah. but no one says biotech's a fad because we always see some successes and every year more diseases are cured and and you know, people are hoping to live to 120 and so on. Because we we trust that biotech is real. We just don't yeah. know about any one company. But yeah. crypto, there's in the way it's a little different than biotech is that maybe there's the exponential growth there, or maybe it's not. Just like with the internet in 1999, a lot of people thought it was a fad. It, it took until it had a billion users, let's say around 2005, before people said, oh, this is here to stay. So like, do you mm. see that tipping point happening for crypto or or is there such a tipping point? I feel like we already had tipping point. Uh, you know, we have like uh, last year, I think the peak is like uh, 350 million users worldwide, uh, someone estimated. But like the average person I know doesn't own any Bitcoin, for instance. And I don't know if we've reached, we haven't reached the tipping point where zero people say this is a fad. Like I would say the internet didn't reach that point until, you know, everybody was really comfortable with putting their credit card numbers in and, and there were a billion users. Then people stopped saying the internet is a fad. Yeah. Okay. So to you, a billion users will be a tipping point. That's what you're saying. Maybe. Or in order to get to a billion users, you need a use case that will fit a billion users. So the use case yeah. of the internet was was e-commerce e and then maybe social media. Yeah, so so to me, the use case that get to a billion users, at least I think that's part of the um, piece of the puzzle, is uh, some kind of a web 2.5, um, you know, innovation. In terms of using tokenization to combine it with some kind of a web 2 model, web 2 businesses, like for example, I'm advising this, um, one company, gosh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not supposed to disclose that, but <laughs> let's just say, <laughs> no, let's not talk about that particular one. But let's just say, for example, um, for example, if like a Uber, right? So um, that's the example I gave in like a like a recently like wrote an article about that. So if if like a Uber tomorrow, there's a new, if Uber starts today, <laughs> and the Uber wants to get to the critical mass very fast. So it, it can use tokenization as an incentive, as a growth hack to help it to get to that stage faster. So instead of bribing users to join the platform with real cash, it can bribe users uh, you know, with, with tokens. And that token will be a platform, uh, hopefully, achieve some kind of platform, um, the payment medium status in the future or um, in order for it to gain value in the future. I agree with this model, but also, okay, let me just play the devil's advocate because I totally agree with you that every, just like every company eventually needed a website, every company eventually is going to do kind of what you're describing, which is almost like a frequent flyer miles type of you know loyalty program. And the question uh -huh. is, why do they need, the question I get when I present this is, why do they need a decentralized platform? Why can't they just use a centralized, why can't Uber just make their own Uber miles and they have monetary value and they don't actually want you to, they don't want composability. They don't want it to be traded on some exchange because they want people to keep their, their Uber miles. So why does it need to be in a crypto format? No, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, but the thing is, uh, the, you, you, you're going to be pressured to do that if, if other people start doing that. Right. So imagine if I'm the Uber, all right, I'm the Uber number one and I have a token well, the people do that all it's like you said it's the airline miles i go to i go to a supermarket i go to a grocery store and they give me points because i spent money there and they give me some points so i can like get some rewards in the future i don't know but the thing is that reward is like siloed right i can you only use it at whole foods or i can only use it in a particular you know supermarket chain or whatever but Whole Foods likes that. Sure, sure. Whole Foods like that. Yeah, airlines like that. But what if? But but now we have the uh, limit, like a uh, uh, wallet, uh, wallet platforms that are like a worldwide with worldwide liquidity available now, right? So imagine tomorrow another supermarket says, "Okay, we're gonna have we have a loyalty program. We'll give you points, but these will be tokenized, so you can actually sell them if you don't want to use them today." 
So now the supermarket number two has an even more attractive loyalty program than supermarket number one, which is a point that you can only use it in that store. So supermarket number two now has a program that's more popular and they're more competitive. Now, what does the supermarket number one have to do? They have to jump on the bandwagon at some point, otherwise they lose competition. Uh, that's a really great point. And if things are traded on markets like this, then at some point it drives up the price of the rewards for supermarket number two to so so high that it's detrimental to use them. So then they switch back to supermarket number one. That's the incentive for supermarket number one to say, okay, yeah, you could start trading these on the on the market. Well, the, the thing is, uh, you know, like uh, uh, a token that has worldwide liquidity that is composable, that can be used uh, outside of the application that issued them is a better featured product compared to a point system that is uh, siloed within a single platform from a user point of view, right? It's a better right. featured product. Now, it used this, this better featured product wasn't available 10 years ago, but now it is available. <laughs> it is an option. Yeah, and and... People always say crypto, oh, what's the value based on? There's no, it's a made up value. But in this case, uh, like a, the Uber case, there's an actual monetary value that could be assigned to uh, an Uber coin because rides have a value. We know what the cost of a ride is. Yeah, so, so you, can, you can think about the, this, uh, um, the, 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 the value of the token. It can happen in, 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 in different ways, right? So one way is it becomes a, the, that token becomes a payment medium for that platform. And as that platform grows, it, it continues to, um, you know, the, the, the token value grows with it. Um, you know, so for some platforms it, you know, you, you, that token can be, uh, used to exchange for, for the products or services of, of whatever the platform offers. Um, so that, that, that gives, in that sense, it's the same thing as the airline miles and, or traditional, loyalty programs. Um, but that kind of, uh, it, but, but that gives a, gives that token some value, right? So, but the thing is, um, actually yesterday I was in this Twitter space and I was talking about this, uh, for companies, it's like, uh, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse, right? So it's, it's, it's a blessing because it's, uh, for newer companies. Now you have this, uh, additional more in like a, a innovative tool, um, as a growth hack. Basically, you can incentivize users without impacting your current day cash flow, essentially. To your point, like that, this might be an incentive for more people to get involved in crypto if they think they could also bet. Like, which comes first, more users or companies like Uber creating these sort of crypto loyalty programs, um, even though there aren't the, the billion users yet, even though there's, there's relatively few view users in the United States? Well, you you got these two. I got to go. There's no nothing comes first. It's uh, equilibrium, right? It's uh, uh yeah. it's uh, like uh, the the two move together. So, or you know, move like in lockstep with each other. More more eyeballs on crypto, um, will attract more uh, solid businesses to start thinking about tokenization, or like a leverage tokenization to drive their business in some way. And more business start doing that, it will drive more users to Web3. So these two like uh, reinforce each other. And then what do you think it might be another like billion user use case? Like clearly, I would think trading uh, of you know, tokenization and trading of those, of those tokens is going to be a big use case. Like why can't I tokenize 5% of my house, for instance, and put it on an exchange where someone could, could sell, sell their, trade their McDonald's stock in exchange for a token that represents one, one millionth of 5% of my house. Like it seems like many more things could be financial derivatives than currently are because well, there are everything right now is centralized. There are projects doing that. You know, a lot of projects are working on the the thing that you said or similar to what you said. It's like a fractionalized, um, some kind of real world hard asset like real estate, for example. Uh, 
either or fractionalize some kind of rental income stream, uh, so on and so forth. Why do you think someone hasn't done this before in a centralized way? And and by the way, I'm a big believer that this is going to drive crypto usage, but the 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 pushback I get is, okay, let's create a centralized database and a centralized company that does this. Why do you need crypto? And you know, my point is it's better with crypto, but how would you answer the person who says, "Hey, you can do all that with real estate with a centralized uh uh you know, software and just focus on real estate?" Yeah, you you totally could. You totally could. Uh, you know, someone would say, uh, well, the value of uh, uh, crypto is that you have like a worldwide liquidity, right? So um, not only so because it's a borderless platform, uh, public blockchains are borderless platforms. So if you have a house in Atlanta, uh, <laughs> you have like companies like uh, managing rental properties in Atlanta uh, you could sell it to some investors. That income stream can be sell, sold to someone in Spain. Uh, so you could say like that. That like reduces transaction costs dramatically, right? So, so ultimately, fundamentally, liquidity is the use case. Yeah, liquidity. It's like a te- like this. Like technology wise, it like uh, reduces the transaction cost of this type of set of like uh, investment income sharing. This. You know transaction costs, but you still you you can but but you can argue well um is the government gonna allow that um because this opens so many Pandora's boxes right so <laughs> um so I don't have an answer to that question I think this is way over the head of government right now <laughs> so so it's uh this kind of thing is like uh you if you allow that you make any kind of like cross-border transaction flow, like a cross-border financial flows, very, very volatile can be, has the potential to make any kind of cross-border financial flows very, very volatile. So um, that means uh, it just like uh, adds more things to do for the government. (laughs) I sort of feel like all that gets solved ultimately. Like people said the same thing about the internet in 1995. Like, well, the phone comp- the government will protect the phone companies. The phone companies will never allow to make people uh, will never allow people to make phone calls through the internet. And of course, the government really couldn't do anything to stop it because it is borderless. So it grows faster than the government's ability to be aware of the problem. Yeah, well, but the government still need to deal with the problem eventually, right? So, um, in this case, if your cross-border financial transactions are are very volatile, it becomes a huge hassle to manage your currency, for example. Um, your currency, because you, 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 you think about like, a, you still have a real world economy, right? So you still have real world trades that need to happen. Uh, you buy and sell stuff, uh, export, import um, in the real world, physical world. And that requires some, some certain kind of stability for your currency to, in order to not disrupt that kind of uh, real world transactions, real world exchanges, right? So if you, it's, 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 especially if you're a smaller country, it's a more, more of an issue. And then like, because you have to export, you have an import and there's a currency conversion going on. If that currency conversion values changes dramatically, it, it, it really, it can be huge disruption to your domestic economy. The real world economy. On the other hand, you have all these financial flows, and that financial those financial flows they're all happening intangible in, in the you know digital world. They have a huge impact on your currency value, which means even though that part has nothing to do with real world economy, it will affect your real world economy. Uh, so one um, if that financial flow becomes a whole lot more volatile, it makes your job a whole lot harder to actually, you know, keep your economy, real world economy stable, right? I think that's why there, there might be a race among smaller countries to become kind of crypto centers, like get the banking, you know, laws in place, get the regulations in place, get, and then have crypto banks, crypto exchanges based in places like Ireland or Dubai or, you know, some island or whatever. I do not see most countries going that route. It's like, uh, 
I would say like, uh, you know, yeah, smaller countries, select countries, but you look at the Bahamas, uh, that's the route they went, right? They attracted FTX. Yeah, yeah. good for them. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out so well. So, so these, uh, you know, because uh, smaller countries, they have lots to lose, obviously. And, uh, you know, they would tend to uh, go for these uh, experimental measures. But, you know, uh, is that a worldwide trend? I do not see it yet. <laughs> but the thing is, that it really makes the government's job harder if you have very volatile cross-border flows. Um, you have, uh, you know, like the, for, for example, uh, the, in the past year, U.S. dollar hugely appreciated against uh, emerging market currencies. So as a result, uh, at least one of the factors that had led to all the emerging market countries have to raise their interest rates, even though their domestic economy was not that strong. So, but they were right. really in a bind because uh, dollar appreciated so much because, you know, and they have uh, like a, a free floating exchange rate. So that really, they have to defend their currencies to a certain extent by, you know, follow, by, by really tagging the Federal Reserve to, to raise interest rate. Otherwise, they will have to you- have a huge, uh, um, you know, uh, portfolio outflows. So, but, but imagine, but, but that's, a, that's, a, that's without the kind of uh, cross-border network like blockchains that has lim- unlimited financial, you know, unlimited, uh, you know, cross-border transaction capacities. So if you have like, a, if you open up to these cross-border transactions through blockchains, it's going to make that, that part, those financial flows way more volatile. And I guess harder to track as well. Like you yeah. right now we know how many dollars are going in and out every single day, yes. but you wouldn't necessarily know that in a, in a crypto world. So you mentioned the Federal Reserve. I'm, I'm curious if you think that the negatives are outweighing the positives in terms of them raising rates. Well, they raised rates. Uh, they they sh- they should have. They and and they did the right thing. Then you know the uh, inflation was very high and the economy was uh, very strong. They and the rate was of uh, very very low and uh, after COVID. So that that was the right thing to do. So I I don't see uh, what is the what is the problem there. <laughs> Maybe. You have to kind of decide what which part of the inflation is related to money supply growth, which part of the inflation is temporary because nobody was buying lumber for two years, so they stopped cutting down trees for two years, and now eventually that comes back, and then the price of lumber goes down, and and, and so on. Same thing with the effects of the Russia-Ukraine war. There's some temporary inflation. So I, I think we talked about this last time, right? So according to some estimates, it's half and half. Half yeah. of the inflation in the U.S. was supply-driven, like supply chain problems, for example. Half of it was a demand factor. So the demand factor could be, you know, related to the excessive money supply growth after, right after COVID. It's a, it's a mix of things, basically. So what do you basically think happens next? Like, are they going to stop reducing rates as much? Or like, what's your personal opinion? For this year, I mean, I the the general expectation is uh, they gonna uh, you know stay the course, say what basically say what what they what they said they were gonna do, basically raise some more, but there's no like additional in addition to what they have already announced. So that's the that's the expectation in general, and I think that's a valid expectation because inflation is coming down may not be coming down to the target range of Federal Reserve very, very quickly in the short term, but it is coming down. On the other hand, the economy is softening. You know, you have, you've seen some like retail numbers coming in. You have some like uh, companies posting earnings. You start to see some pretty significant downward surprise in earnings. But in, in general, economy is softening. Inflation is coming down, but inflation is not down, you know, not there yet. And uh, employment numbers are still holding up really well. So I expect they will continue tightening, but it, w- it would not be as steep. It would be softer, milder compared to what they did in, in the last year. So the tightening path that they have already announced, I, I expect them to be executed, but that's already expected by the market. And do you think... Um- Given that it's expected by the market, do you think, and, and I think a lot of the reason the crypto market has fallen so much is since November 2021 is that A, 
you know, that's when the Fed started really signaling that they were going to be raising rates quite high for some time. So the crypto markets panicked, the stock markets panicked, real estate panicked. Do you think now expectations are more built in and we could see another, you know, a significant crypto move upwards or what's your feeling on that? I'm not, I, I, you know, it's tricky to make these predictions. I'm not, I, I don't know how significant it will be, but I expect it to be a more stable market compared to last year for sure. Well, Tasha, as always, like you're so intelligent. Your, your analysis of all these situations is so intelligent. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I read everything you write and I think everyone else should too. Um, how can people sign up for your newsletter, which is so, again, so valuable? Yeah, so it's a free newsletter about Web3 and macro in general. You can go to tashalabs.com slash newsletter to sign up. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, this, this has been super fun. Yeah, I always enjoy talking to you. And, and thanks again. Thanks.